Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people that make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. As we get into the last two episodes of the first season here at Water for Fighting, I'd like us to close out with individuals who I think are really going to grab your attention. And that's why I think it's so fitting that today's guest is one of the most well-liked and respected environmental lobbyists working in Tallahassee today. And that's Ryan Matthews. I had the privilege of getting to know Ryan over a decade ago when he was making his mark at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, first as the Director of Office Water Policy and eventually as a DEP Secretary. He would go on to use his skills to represent some of the largest utilities, local governments, professional associations, and businesses in the state, and is now doing that as a shareholder for the highly regarded Gray Robinson Law Firm. Now on to the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. How are you, sir? I am well, thanks. Out of nine guests now that I've had on the show, nearly all of them are either from here or somewhere else in Florida or somewhere other altogether. And you fit in that last part. You're from New York, right? I am. Upstate New York. So, you know, most people see 95% of New York as New York City. I am from Cowpasture, Troy, New York. Okay. And so is is that the deal is I've known people from New York City and that, and basically every place that's not New York City is is upstate, right? Is that kind of the deal? Effectively, yeah. But you're actually up the state. Upstate. Yeah. I mean, you know, Troy is outside of the capital Albany. Um, so the home of Uncle Sam, no big deal. <laughs> oh, there's an actual Uncle Sam. There's an actual Uncle Sam. Oh, wow. Yeah, very, there you go. News to live by. So you're... Mom and dad are both from Troy, correct? They are, as well as, I mean, really the entirety of my extended family is from Troy, New York. So my parents met when they were about 10 years old, um, started dating at, at 12. Um, so that's how it is in New York then. I think that's that. how it is. <laughs> when I say small town, I mean small town. Tell me about what, and that's interesting, I'm like that they, you know, from 12 years old, that's a huge deal. That doesn't happen often anymore. It's a unique story. Um, they lived a couple blocks away from each other. Uh, so obviously in, in, in elementary school or grade school, if you're a northerner, um, they met and you know started dating at 12. They took one year off in the entirety of their relationship from being together. And that you know was till the time my dad passed at 61. You know, we're together from 12 years old. Wow. Yeah. So you, you said your entire extended family is from, is from Troy. What brought... Your mom and dad down to down to Florida. Then, I mean, the short answer is winter. Uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of something that uh, is pretty harsh up there. Uh, my dad played quarterback. He was a five nine quarterback at the University of Rochester, so wow. he managed to escape Troy for a short period of time, and then he decided to go to law school. And he decided to go to law school at the University of Miami in Coral Gables, and we can get into the, the issues that caused me as a child uh, later on. But, uh, you know, escape in New York, uh, they decided to go to, the, to Miami. My mom was a registered nurse down there. You know, you're talking late 70s, early 80s. So wow. um, from a, you know, health perspective, you're talking about the emergence of HIV and, and sort of uh, the civil unrest in Miami at the time. Mm. I heard I have some great stories uh, about things that occurred. But, yeah, it was literally, let's go to law school. My mom, who was always his partner, said, absolutely, let's go to Florida. Wow. So he was the one person in the entire Matthews family that figured out that winter is horrible in New York. They uh, they all seem to embrace it. Now, 
you moved down, you were, I think you said eight months old. Is that right? I was eight months. So born there, my dad then took the bar here in Florida. Um, and I think while he was sort of looking for next steps, um, I stayed in New York with my mom. Um, so he was on sort of this original path that was not, you know, environmental law. Um, and I have a, a quick story about that. That's pretty funny. So he was a three L at the university of Miami last year, law school <clears throat> had a fairly prominent internship, if you will, with a criminal defense attorney down there. And this one client just happened to be a, you know, um, high ranking member of a certain drug cartel, um, that they were going to federal court ultimately win, win the case, uh, that they were representing, uh, this group of gentlemen on and they come home to their really small apartment in a bad area of town. And there's, you know, boxes of chocolates and dozens of roses that are in their apartment. And hmm. my mother said, if you represent these people and they know where you live, you're going to do something else. So <laughs> criminal law very quickly became environmental law. Yeah. I hear you. My dad was in the IRS in the, the early to late seventies and out of uh, Miami, the Miami office. And, and my mom did not enjoy his tenure down there, which is why we ended up in central Florida. Yep. So what was, what was little Ryan Matthews like? You grew up here. You grew up here in Tallahassee though. Right? I grew up in Tallahassee. I mean, so when we moved, my dad met Wade Hopping, uh, probably early 1981, um, we moved to Tallahassee shortly thereafter, probably latter part of that year. So I spent a majority of my life here. Mm. Um, young Ryan Matthews was sports obsessed, mm. um, living in Tallahassee. I mean, we had sort of, you know, Metro conference basketball, FSU basketball. Oh, we yeah. had, uh, you know, fantastic FSU football at the time. So if there was a baseball, basketball or, or football game going on, I was, I was there. How on earth does that, does that work at this point? So you're from New York, you're, your family bills fans. Uh, it's I'm like, how does the sports dynamic work in the Matthews house? Cause your dad is university of Miami law, Miami law. Avid Hurricane fan. The fighting what's of University of Rochester? It's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, probably why a 5'9 quarterback could actually play right. football. So, so not, not a lot on TV. So, I mean, Miami, though, however, is, and that's how it was when you were growing up, was all University of Miami? Is that the... Pushed on me from my father, which I rejected outright. I mean, I, I was a diehard <laughs> and am a diehard Seminole fan. Um, and maybe just in spite of sort of his actual fandom of the University of Miami. So <laughs> the uh, the relationship that I created, I mean, you can imagine me in my, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, white, right, one, two, and three, oh where I've got a father, and for those who knew my father, was not shy about rubbing it in my face that, you know, I, I just had my heart crushed because we missed another field goal to the right. Um, I think that sort of, uh, you know, it, it spurned or caused our relationship to, uh, um, to be quite dynamic from the start. But, I mean, in terms of a, a, a North versus South sports relationship, I mean, obviously it's much more professional sports related up there. Yeah. Um, I've got family, you know, Split in between being Mets and Yankees fans, mm. a lot of New York Giant fans. Um, but uh, so college football and the passion that we have down here for college football, I, I think it's missing up there. Yeah. Unless I think, you're a big Syracuse fan. I'm not. 
One, I probably when it comes to basketball, oh. you can they can survive it with that. Yeah. I have a I have a friend who's a, a Syracuse fan, but she's also a Florida State fan. But she went to the University of Central Florida, just to give you an idea of how weird it gets. And we're gonna get to that in a little bit because we'll have to come. I think we we'll have to come back to the sports part when we get to a little bit later in your your college career because you get you throw all of this giant curveball in there. But I want to talk about still. You're you're a kid. You love sports. Your dad is hilarious. By the way, it's like your dad was for a guy that's setting up as a litigator. He kind of ended up lobbying like that. I thought it was interesting that you that that you mentioned that because he was one of my favorite people to hear because he was so passionate. He was always gr- you know grinding at an issue and really passionate about it. So that was an interesting nugget I didn't expect there. So let's get back to to you as a kid though. Sure. You played baseball. That was is that your big one? Did you play all, like a lot of kids? You play a bunch. I played I'm everything. Sure. Uh, baseball was the most consistent, and it was uh, year round for me, which was a little bit different back then. I mean, this was sort of the onset of travel baseball. Now you know every mm. eight year old has a travel something team. Um, things have changed quite a bit, but yeah, I, I played baseball year round all of my life. So what position did you play? What was what was your what was your main position? Like what got you to past high school travel ball? Uh, third base, but also catcher. So I hit left-handed, but I threw right, right-handed. Um, and my father used to say that he he did not teach me to hit left-handed. I simply picked up a bat and hit left-handed. And if you can if you can do that and be a catcher, you're generally in pretty high demand. Yeah, I mean I. I it always seems to be the way, especially when you, you know, in the in the early ranks, is no one's, no one's hitting left. I mean, no. where you find a left-handed hitter, a left-handed pitcher, they're like gold. That's just it. I mean, the vast majority of, of kids are throwing the ball right-handed from yeah. from a pitching standpoint. So if if you can be left-handed, you've got a just sort of a, a one-up. Yeah, curveballs out. And so you end up in playing baseball at Santa Fe College. And that's in Gainesville, right? It is. It is. I had uh, very briefly attempted to walk on at Florida State University, where I attended my freshman year, um, but realized that that might have been a, a different caliber of hmm. player at that point. I was wondering because I I saw that in the in the bio, and my assumption was you go to Santa Fe because you want to try to walk on at UF. But it was you tried Florida State and then went to Santa Fe. Yeah, I so coming out of high school, I probably had a number of opportunities to play at, at small Division One, a, a lot of Division Two baseball programs. Was struggling as many eighteen year olds do about you know what what is their future hold? What do they want to do? How much do they really love what they love at the time? Um, and, and I made the decision. Um, you know what? I I'm gonna try to walk on an FSU. Don't really love baseball. Probably played it too much up until that point. Hmm. Um, and then I think the heartbreak of not making FSU's team, which I watched all my life, um, I kind of said, well, maybe I do really like baseball. And, and so hmm. Santa Fe was was an easy choice. When you say the idea of not making it, is that as not getting drafted or not playing at a the a, the big uh, Division One school. It's probably both simultaneously. Um, you know, realizing that just because you were really good in high school um, doesn't mean that you're going to be really good in at the best college program, or that you're ultimately going to become a professional baseball player like so many you know five, six, seven, eight year old boys want. Yeah. Um, so when you, you're faced with that reality, it was sort of all right. Well, let me play junior college baseball for mm-hmm. a couple years, have fun, but also. 
you know, at about 20, say, maybe I don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. to lift weights and, and run. Um, maybe I can just drink beer like a normal college kid. <laughs> but at that point, then, let's get to the psychology of the decision-making at this point. Sure. Your dad's a University of Miami grad. You grew up a Florida State fan. You go to Santa Fe to play college. Perfectly natural thing to do under your circumstances. And then now um, help me with the logic train of instead of going back to Tallahassee for Florida State, you choose number three of the big, you know, the major colleges in Florida, University of Florida to do undergrad. Is that right? It, it's true. Um, well, I mean, a couple things, right? I was already in Gainesville. So yeah. easy transition there. Um, and I love Tallahassee. I, and I, I've always liked Tallahassee. Um, but it is, for me, it was important to spend time elsewhere, um, and just get to know a different place. And I, I love Gainesville. Um, Gainesville, the town is, is so much fun, particularly if you're a college kid, but my allegiance to Florida state never, never waned. Was that, that, was that weird down there? You're going to school in a place where, and they're, you know, lively. They're lively. I was pretty vocal about it probably because I was just that, you know, young guy who wanted to maybe cause some some issues uh, so I proudly wore my Florida State stuff <laughs> on campus and surprisingly never got punched in the face That's, yeah. um, well you didn't get punched in the face um, but you did start a life of crime there or is that when the I did my toe started? I did my toe tell me about that uh, it must feel either vindicating or hilarious or something now because there's a thousand aftermarket ticket sale services where you can buy or sell tickets however you wish. But yeah, yeah there are, there is. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't at the time. Right. So, so we, we had a, a really good setup in Gainesville where, you know, for those who attended the University of Florida, we had a house with five guys, catty corner to the law school. Um, so you're talking, you know, steps away from the swamp. And you mentioned the liveliness of Gainesville and, and the students there. So, you know, 2001, UF's got a, a good football team. I mean, we're talking like Rex Grossman days for okay. those who, you know, remember uh, college football well. Um, Tennessee was in town, which was always a big SEC East rivalry. Um, you know, look, college students get tickets for basically free. Um, and if there was an opportunity to make some money on those tickets, young Ryan Matthews was going to take advantage <laughs> of that opportunity. So we had had a tailgate early on in the morning for this big night game, um, as we were wont to do, um, a van with a gentleman, uh, with a cardboard sign that said, I need tickets, um, hanging out, pulled up into the driveway. And I said, let's, let's enter into a transaction for my tickets. Turns out that gentleman was an undercover <laughs> cop, uh, and at the time, scalping tickets was illegal. Oh, so yeah, I, I pleaded no contest to a ticket scalping violation. Thankfully, I'm still, you know, statute of limitations or or whatnot has passed. I'm I'm okay. I'm gonna say we can put in a word with the the governor, try to get get that expunged for you. So so you graduate after your time in foreign territory. Uh, at the University of Florida, you go to law school. How much of that is related to your father's you know, practice? Initially, none of it. I was actually adamantly opposed to doing what my father did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not a shot in any, any way, shape or form. It's actually the opposite. I, you know, 
I revered what my father did, and I saw how well-respected he was. And I thought, um, by walking in his shoes, I, number one, didn't want to get accused of getting anything because of who he was right. or what he did. Um, but number two, I also just said, why would I want to become an environmental lawyer? It doesn't make any sense to me at the time. Right. So I was working in D.C. Um, on the Hill, and um, I was working for Senator Bill Nelson at the time. And my father called me, uh, and he said, listen, you know, you're doing good things. That's fantastic. Be mindful of the fact that you're working for a Democrat in D.C., if you want to always, for the rest of your professional career, work for Democrats, then stay in the job you're in. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that doesn't sound <laughs> uh, like a great idea. Right. Um, maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should go to law school. And that was law school. Wow. And, and, and you're right. It's like, it, it is a tough thing because your dad was so well-respected and so good at his job. I, I guess to... To maybe his credit and yours, I didn't know that the two of you were related until I don't know you'd been around a little while, or at least I you'd been around me a little while. I was like, oh well, that you know that sort of makes sense, you know. There, you know, but I assumed okay, well, Frank's a environmental attorney and and lobbyist, so obviously that's what Ryan's going to want to do. But but it always seems to be the the story is always a little more complicated than that, so. Yeah, it wasn't obvious to me. Um, it was only that I got into law school, and I think as most students do when they you know, first matriculate, it's, okay, I don't want to be a prosecutor. I really don't want to litigate. Um, mm. I don't want to do family law. My goodness, that's heartbreaking. Um, so I started checking boxes, and right. it was, you know, back to the sports-obsessed 10-year-old. Should Ryan become a an agent? Right. That'd be cool. Um, but then I took, you know... Uh, water law class and I took uh, you know a, a, a couple environmental law classes and thought all right I, I kind of dig this hmm. but to that to that end I'm like knowing that hey, you didn't want to necessarily go into it be an environmental attorney or maybe an attorney at all but did did you and your your dad talk about that sort of thing when you were your younger issues he was working on you know client stuff so Yes and no. Uh, I think a lot of it was sort of the, I always say I kind of picked it up through osmosis, which is, you know, completely incorrect scientific term, but just (laughs) sort of how I envision the process um, playing out as a kid. We talked about what he did. My memories of him, you know, especially early on, are constantly talking into a dictaphone. Hmm. Um, He he generally was um, always present. For as hard as he worked he was always present. There was rarely a baseball game that he missed. And so because of that, you know, my most vivid memories of a child are him, uh, you know, in bed at night with just papers <laughs> scattered everywhere um, until like two in the morning working. Um, so we talked about it, but mainly it was because he represented, you know, folks like Disney um, and Mosaic and was part of really cool projects, um, you know, like um, permitting nuclear power plants. Um, so even though most kids have the, you know, uh, don't really care what my dad does type mm-hmm. attitude. I, I was always at least interested in on some of the stuff he was he was working on. Yeah, you, you mentioned that him being present even in the midst of that, and it's a it is a hectic lifestyle uh, that he led that you lead now. Did that carry over? I feel it's it's always you've always struck me as one of the folks here 
who is actually married to their wife and actually uh, has a family that that they enjoy and, and not the other way around. Is that true? Yes, uh, definitively. Uh, I would I would say that, um, and I and I learned that from my dad. I mean, he he was constantly on the go, constantly busy, constantly taking client calls. Um, but he was, when he was with us, he was present. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I hope, I mean, I've got a, a 10 year old daughter, an eight year old son, uh, been married for almost 13 years. You know, it, it's something that I try to emulate the best that I can. Um, because yeah, it's nice to love your wife and, and love yeah. your family <laughs> and enjoy them. Um, and I learned a lot of those lessons from him. Nice. Nice. So let's get to beyond law school. You come come back home, right? Or did you not come come back home? Come back home. So after law school, I was a glutton for higher education. Uh, I went to the University of Denver and got an LLM in environmental law. Which what's is, a what's an LLM for it, the non-attorneys? It's non-attorney a specialized stuff. master's in a subject matter area. Um, I think it really kind of started with taxation being the main focus, mm-hmm. and then different folks, universities, uh, branched out on on subject matter. And environmental law was one of those in Denver. You know, for for someone who was twenty three years old, twenty four years old, not a bad place to to live. Yeah. And so uh, how long was that in Denver? It was only a year. Okay. So my my now wife, we were dating at the time, um, actually met at a wedding in Tallahassee um, where she went with my former boss, Bill Nelson's son, and mm. I happened to leave with her, which probably angered the Nelson family. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were dating, doing long distance, was planning on actually staying in Colorado. I had a job with the National Park Service, mm. um, was digging it, was in their legal counsel sort of internship program, but it was 2007, 2008. Right. So that was about the time that, you know, country was in a little bit of a recession. Once that that gig ended, it was, well, let's go back to Tallahassee. My, my wife at the time owned a home here. She was a teacher. Her family's from here. Mm-hmm. So it was an easy, easy call. Yeah, it sounds like it. But she, you said she grew up here. She grew up here. She's never lived anywhere else, despite the fact that I've lived five or six places. So, so then, uh, when did you actually get married? Was it was it make it two thousand ten? Then we got married in two thousand eleven. Uh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Two thousand eleven. Okay. And so you're all degreed up. Many you're, degrees. You're learned up. You've got the buds of a new family, and. Now you're now you're starting work here in Tallahassee. Was your first job like you know? Was your first job at DEP? Where did you, where did you go no. first? So when I came back in '08, I started um, with Jeff Cockcamp, who was Lieutenant Governor at the time, mm-hmm. um, but running for Attorney General, and so he had just started his campaign, um, and through the Republican Party of Florida. You know, they kind of said, hey, would you like this hotshot kid got all these degrees um, to help you work on your campaign? So I was Governor Cock Camp's, you know, um, bad guy, travel aide. I self-proclaimed policy director because I wanted to sound official. Um, So policy director. So I spent a good year on the campaign trail with Governor Cock Camp. And, you know, ultimately, uh, General Bondi won that election. So, yeah. That, uh, that does happen, doesn't it, sometimes? It's very uh, sudden after Election Day. You know, that next day, it's like, so I, I don't have a job anymore. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, I, I went and, and worked for the Florida League of Cities 
um, for almost six years uh, in their general counsel's office and then handling a number of legislative issues. That's where I kind of cut my teeth lobbying, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, it's humorous for a couple different reasons, mainly because, you know, Frank Matthews was sort of enemy number one of local government <laughs> um, or certain local governments across the state of Florida. So um, uh, early on, at least, I got to take that pseudo adversarial role mm -hmm. to my dad, which we kind of played off nicely with each other. Nice. And I think that's the, the, the first time I had heard of you when you were at the, the League of Cities. I didn't know you were there that long, though. That's interesting. It was, yeah. No, I bounced back from the count, the general counsel's office um, into just sort of a, a, you know, largely lobbyist role. Right, right. So so six years learning learning the ropes, not at your dad's law firm, um, which I think is a, is, a, is a good sign, bodes well for... Um, it speaks well, not just of you, but also your father to not allow you to, to work there. And so you go out, you, you make your bones, you fight with your dad, almost certainly. Um, yes. I've seen some of the, the, the legislation in the old days that he worked on and you were definitely busy. <laughs> Regulatory reform always gave me uh, sort of the, the, the chills. Right. <laughs> it's a comprehensive package. Yeah, that's what it yeah. is. But he and was a Jimmy Petronas and a few others just joined at the joined at the hip on some of those. It was interesting days. It was, sure. and I remember um, when, when that quote unquote regulatory reform bill passed. Um, I vividly remember Jimmy coming out of the House chamber and just bear hugging my dad, and it sort of encapsulated how a how hard it is to pass legislation, but b how closely you can work with some of those legislators. Yeah, no doubt. So how did you get the, the first time you and I ever really talked? I mean, we may have, I, we may have talked a couple of times sure. while you're at the cities, but, but we didn't really interact with each other until you went to DEP. And I think that was probably what, 2011 ish, maybe 12, something like that. Actually it was more 13. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what got you there? It's, you know, under what circumstances, why'd you take it? Cause it was the office. It wasn't, it was at the office of water policy, right? It started. was, um, it was largely because there was a, a recognized ceiling in my job with the league of cities, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Um, and, and then secondly, our mutual friend, John Steverson. That's right. Um, so I had, you know, the perfect time to consider a career change when your wife is pregnant and you're a young guy. Um, Secretary Steverson a couple times and said, hey, I'd, you know, I'd like you to come over to the department. Um, I, I couldn't wrap my head around working at a state agency at the time. So I spurned him maybe twice. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it was a, a lengthy courtship, if you will. Uh, <laughs> and I think he just finally broke me down and said, hey, I've got this really cool opportunity mm -hmm. kind of starting my tenure there in this new role as well. Um, and, and think we could do some cool things together. And he bent it to something else, right? Because the the idea was it was tucked down into the agency before, did not have the bandwidth that it did when you came in. And it was separate and apart because whether it, it was it was largely, you know, John's and Herschel's doing, Herschel being, right. being the secretary preceding John, yep. um, was the idea of, of making water a, a significant priority. Well, and that was the, you know, 
the bulk of our conversation before I agreed to come in is I, I told him a couple things. I said, number one, you know, I, I want to report to you and just you. I don't want to talk to three people before I talk to the secretary. <laughs> right, right. Um, and number two, if, if we're going to really give the Office of Water Policy, you know, a robust sort of backing, you know, tell me what that means to you. Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, look, we're a peninsula state who gets 50 plus inches of rain per year. Doesn't mean we don't have our water issues. We've got a number of them. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's because we have an abundance of water. But um, I knew that it was a really cool policy area. And whether you're talking about quality or quantity, the issues are, you know, a thousandfold. Was that something that, I mean, you, your dad dealt with environmental issues, but he dealt with a lot of issues. And, and so was that your, I wanna, I'm trying to find, you know, was that your portfolio at the League of Cities was, was you kind of moved into that, that territory and so it was a more natural transition? Or? Yeah. So I would classify my dad as largely a dirt lawyer. I mean, a lot of land use, right. um, a lot of private property rights issues. And, and he generally always represented either, you know, the business community or, or developers. Yeah. Um, when I was at the League of Cities, I did a lot of land use work as well. I mean, we're talking about um, early on sort of the rewriting of growth management laws and, you know, late 2009, early 2010, et cetera. Um, so I started there, but also handled utility issues. And so as I kind of grew in my professional capacity as a lobbyist, my subject matter largely centered around environmental issues anyway. So it allowed me to sort of, you know, fight my father in the legislative arena, um, but also kind of become passionate and carry over what I did at Denver as it related to water law effectively. And and certainly there are stark differences between Western water law and Eastern water law, as you well know. But um, yeah, it kind of helped me sort of, uh, you know, chart a path that was a little bit of a niche uh, focus. Hmm. And so at that point, you're, you serve as director in, in that office, but then is it because Jeff Little John's a giant quitter and left uh, the department as the regulatory deputy secretary? So is it's that, actually Paula uh, Cobb's a giant quitter. Oh, Paula Cobb's a giant. the department <laughs> as enough. deputy secretary. So yeah, as Office of Water Policy you know, director, my, my most interaction and where we talked quite frequently um, is is with water management districts. Uh, and, and so when Paula got a different opportunity, um, she stepped aside and, and Secretary Stevenson said, hey, you know, how about going from an office of five, we go to an office of 1100. <laughs> That's right. Sound good. And, yeah. And I said, yeah, bring it on. Yeah. And so you went from interesting policy discussions, uh, uh, budget conversations, you had a lot of, of that general oversight you know when you look at all five of the water management districts mm-hmm. so you, but but it's fairly even keel you got a lot of folks that you know partners and, and uh, executive directors i being one of them at the time to you know to work with you on these issues but you decide so you go from that to what i consider top three four hardest jobs in that entire agency um, without a doubt right and so was it hey here's a here's a new mountain to to climb or or what what, what took you there? So I think it was the, um, the opportunity to learn a whole host of new issues, uh, mm-hmm. because you're right. I mean, that, the breadth of that job is so large when you're talking about all air, water, and waste permits that come through the department um, in a state the size of Florida with the unique natural resources that we have. Um, 
it was an opportunity, but also it was scary as hell um, because there were a number of areas, you know, hazardous waste. Yeah. I hadn't had a lot of interaction there. Um, and I'm still like to think that I'm still young. So at the time, um, I knew that I was not going to be the smartest person in every room, Mm. uh, especially on certain topics. Yeah. And so, I mean, on that subject, and because, you you know, I want to touch on because you end up being serving a shift as the secretary of the agency, but going from at a a pretty young age, you know, at that time for certain uh, a young age uh, to be in that position, going from relatively small offices to enormous to entire agency. Did you develop, did you have time to develop a management style in the midst of that? What, or, and if you did, like what, what was that? So I think obviously when you're talking about leading a large group of people, um, the first and foremost, you, you kind of have to be the example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I just stated that I, I knew that I wasn't going to be the smartest person in the room. Right. Um, so I needed to a surround myself with the smartest people I could find and, and lean on their counsel um, as much as possible. But B also get to know folks who were quite frankly in the day to day operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, any given permit that comes into DEP of which there are thousands per year, you know, I, I'm not going to know the intricacies of one unless I spend significant time on it. I obviously can't spend significant time on 1100. So I needed to lean on the folks who were, you know, in, in the muck, if you will, and, yeah. and doing things on a day-to-day basis. So my leadership style was, you know, let me show my appreciation. Let me know and find out what you do for the department. Um, and, and then make sure that you realize that, you know, you're appreciated because there are certain, you know, obstacles when it comes to showing appreciation to state workers. Yeah. We didn't have the state budget that we have today where every year folks are getting a 3% pay increase. Yeah. I mean, these were sort of austere times. Um, so when, when you knew that, Hey, I can't reward you financially per se. Um, but I can come tell you, you're doing a great job and, and I appreciate you, um, and be open as sort of the head or pseudo head of, of a department or an agency entirety that, you know, um, I'm here if you need something. That, yeah. that was more my, my style. And you always it struck me in those days, and, you know, before really knowing you as somebody who spent a lot more time listening than talking, which is for lawyers out there, I apologize, but is not a common trait of attorneys or, or lobbyists often. Did that kind of fit in there as well? You're going, you know, you go into a place and you do, you know, it seems like you're, you're trying to, you know, figure how do I best, you know, help these folks? Is that kind of the... Yeah, that's just, fair. Um, I mean, look, I was uh, I was sort of thrust in to a certain degree of, uh, to some of these roles, which I embraced, but also knew that I was interacting and engaging um, with folks who were heads of industry, you know, heads of, of Fortune 100 companies um, as, you know, permit applicants for, mm-hmm. for the department. Um, but also, you know, politicians on a daily basis. So I, I needed to consume as much as I could to a, you know, to be, um, you know, educated on any given issue, but also, you know, as a 33, 34 year old, I just didn't want to sound like an idiot. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make sure that, um, yeah. I knew what I was talking about. And, and that led to, probably me going prematurely gray and spending a lot of time on, on different issues. But I I like to think that it also made me fairly effective too. Yeah, no, I agree. 
and so to touch on, you, so you leave the agency to go out into the private sector, but I want to talk for for a minute and give you a chance to kind of help listeners understand something that kind of overlaps both of those things. Because you were at one point the chairman of the Central Florida Water Initiative, uh, which is a longstanding organization of sorts to try to solve some pretty significant water quantity issues, but also Section 404 of the Clean Water Act um, was something that Florida ended up uh, being delegated from the federal government. Both of those have their significant challenges, but you were, you know, chest deep or deeper, some might some might say, in both of those. Uh, tell me or tell us what is Section 404, why the state would want to take on the responsibility, you know, in that delegation. Sure. And then some of the challenges there. So Section 404 of the Clean Water Act governs discharges of dredge and fill material uh, into waters of the United States. So anytime you're moving dirt, particularly around a wetland um, or other water body, you're going to require a Section 404 permit. Now, historically, those permits were granted by the Army Corps of Engineers. Mm. Florida has a similar permitting scheme that you're well-versed in, in an environmental resource permit. Um, A lot of water management districts will actually issue environmental resource permits. So why did we want to assume uh, the 404 program in Florida is because somewhere between 85 and 87% of the time, those two permits overlap. You're effectively mm-hmm. getting a permit, two permits for the same activity. Right. Um, and there are very different, um, call them, you know, shot clocks that a federal agency like the Army Corps of Engineers has versus what a state environmental agency as a water management district or DEP has. There is no shot clock for the Army Corps of Engineers <laughs> to issue say, a permit. Yeah. So yeah. you you legitimately have stories of permit applications sitting on desks in Jacksonville or Atlanta or right. Miami for years. Right. Um, and that's unacceptable, quite frankly. And I've always I've always viewed um, you know, our regulatory agencies as Absolutely necessary for the protection of the natural resource. Yeah. But that does not mean that construction activities and development still shouldn't occur. Now, you should should have those within the sort of the view of how do you balance the natural resources versus the development. And it it should always be a very fine and even line, quite frankly. Um, but the, the need for Florida to do so, I think was, was just efficiency. Um, Michigan and New Jersey had done it prior. So there was some precedent set. And this was a conversation that as I was secretary, um, and really in 2015, 2016 was sort of blossoming as this is our opportunity of Mm -hmm. which we've tried for decades to actually get this done. Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned that it's like doing construction is still legal, you know, in the state of Florida still have. and the standards we're talking about didn't change. And so, so you're right. It's like there were the, these delays based on sometimes who knows what, but I think, you know, in terms of, of at least dealing with the regular community of saying, Hey, you're, there's no difference in what you're going to be required to do. However, you should be able to get an answer within a couple of years. Even if that answer is no. Right. Cause sometimes the answer is no. Yeah. Tell me about, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to say the the wheels came off, but somewhere in the transition, I've heard rumors and innuendos. Um, I don't know how much of it's true, but but some some have said that as soon as they knew that 
that delegation was really coming, reviewers put their pencils down, packed everything neatly in boxes and waited for that to happen and stop working. Is that, have you heard the same, the same rumors or, or what? Because when you look at the dump that happened of permit applications, I think it was three, four days before Christmas. And it says, here you go, Florida. How about it? It's hard not to uh, make accusations that there was some um, uh, nefarious activity from uh, federal agencies in certain regards. Um, Yeah, I I think that you're right. There was a clunkiness to the assumption um, that probably was um, done... Uh, for certain reasons, uh, as, as sort of, a, okay, Florida, you wanted assumption. Well, we're, we're going to give it to you. We might mm-hmm. not necessarily make it easy. Um, but I think in any large government agency, you're always going to have sure. you know, certain folks who um, they've been there and, they, and their mindset is, well, I'll just wait you out um, as the applicant and it'll be what it'll be. Um, right. And that could, same could be said for a head of an agency. Um, you know, I, I was very clear to me at DEP <laughs> that there were certain folks who said, well, man, I'll just wait for three or four years and you'll be gone. Right. And so right. I'll continue to do what I want to do. Just to, just to pause on that notion in terms of, in terms of governance, in terms of trying to make a change, it was easy for me. I spent you know, 10 years at the same agency, you know, heading it up is like, but the lifespan of a secretary at DEP or any agent, any large state agency like that one is not so long. I mean, almost never extends even to the, the term of the guy that gave you the job, which is the right. governor. Does that I mean, does, does that present a challenge of you try to do something, but it doesn't really, nothing really sticks or, I mean, in this case it happened. And, you know, the assumption happened, you know, the warts on it that you have to you have to deal with to move forward are there. But that's got to feel at least a little a little good to, you know, to have something like that, that at least moves forward, even if it has the. Sure. And, I you know, look, I was a a small part in that um, effort overall, but it, it was nice to be able to lead the charge to meet with folks who would be most impacted to garner their support of it to talk to the governor's office and, and quite frankly, you know, lead them down the path as to why this was the right decision for the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, the actual assumption took three years um, just because of the interaction with EPA, with the Army Corps of yeah. Engineers, with Big Fish, etc. Um, but yeah, you know, this was also something going back to my dad um, that he sort of saw as the, the holy grail. Um, and so it was even cooler for me personally to say, Hey, you know, I had a, I had a small part in it. Yeah. And I assume it was like under those circumstances that if you had to do it all over again, you know, warts and all, you do it again. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So the other big one, one I want to talk about, cause it has, a, you know, had a lot to do. I, you know, I was at Swift Mud, you know, a million years ago. I grew up, you know, around the, the CFWI area and that's the Central Florida Water Initiative area. I think I said that before, but just in case, I made you the chairman of of that ship. Was it the Titanic, or tell me, tell me the well, tell listeners first the function of the CFWI, and you know, and then is it working? How about that? Sure. Um, let's start with the function. So, for those who don't know, the Central Florida Water Initiative. Uh, is a regulatory effort of multiple agencies. You've got three water management districts, 
St. John, South Florida, and, and Southwest, as you mentioned. Uh, you also have the Department of Environmental Protection, the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, and then utilities. So the notion behind this effort was Central Florida is likely your, your most heavily population-increasing area of the state. So obviously water resources are going to be constricted and constrained. Um, so we, we finalized through um, you know, hydrological studies and, and data that we've got you know, 800 million gallons per day of capacity in the, in the aquifer in Central Florida. We have a need determination in the future because of that increasing population of, say, 1,100 million gallons per day right. of water need. So how do you make up that delta of 300-plus million gallons per day for a you know ever-growing population? And so it was really cool to be able to try to solve a long-term planning process with our most precious resource that we utilize every day and need for survival. Um, but how do we get there? Cause you're not stopping people from moving to Florida. Right. So you're going to need to make some pretty bold decisions either now or in the future about water permitting, about uses, um, you know, who gets the water? Those are big questions. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you satisfied that the work that was done there, I've seen a lot of positive that's come from it and at least some predictability. Are you satisfied with the follow through from the state or? No, we could do a lot more. Um, you know, one of the things that I really liked about my time at the department is I think, again, you talk about 404, but I really tried to focus on water quantity. Hmm. It was one of those things where Governor Scott at the time, I think we got him on board and his administration on board with the need to fund alternative water supply projects. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back to sort of um, 2004, 5, That's 6, right. you know, we were using the Water Protection Sustainability Trust Fund and getting like an 8 to 1 return on investment in terms of, you know, dollars spent by the, by the state of Florida. Um, yeah. And we dropped off, obviously, because of a recession, um, but we need to start thinking and appropriating dollars for those large-scale alter alternative water supply projects um, for sustainability purposes. Yeah. Under those circumstances, you must think that even though they brought it back, and I think it was Governor Scott that did that originally, um, thanks to you, put something toward it. But it was not, this is not 2005, 2006 dollars. That's, you know, those, that's $100 million. Yeah. Uh, sometimes more the first year and that uh, non-recurring was double that. So it's it's quite a bit less. And so is that what you're talking about? What, you know, is a hundred million dollars a number is $200 million a number. I mean, it's an expensive lift that you're talking about. And so does the $40 million, right. you know, a year. Um, do yeah, if, it. You, if you're in the 40 to $50 million range, I mean, that's the proverbial drop in the bucket, right? Uh, I mean, one of the things that I, I said um, multiple times on, on my, you know, public speaking tour as secretary <laughs> was, was that DOT has an $11 billion budget. You know, DEP at the time had like a $1.2 billion budget. Yeah. So while transportation's very important to a state that's tourism reliant uh, as Florida, you know, water's pretty dang important, too. Yeah, and I think there's at least certainly on the water quality side, it seems like that recognition is pretty, pretty widespread at this point. I think because once it's touched, you know, everyone's lives, you know, at this point, not just on the coast, that becomes relevant. But I don't think, and maybe things like the CFWI have 
prevented us from realizing, you know, the deficit when it comes to to things like that, especially given that we're still such a fast growing state. I mean, thanks to, you know, a governor and, gov- and a string of governors that continue to make it that way. I mean, there's a lot of water we've got to figure out how to get. From a funding perspective, Governor DeSantis has done, you know, tremendous things as it relates to yeah. uh, environmental projects. And, and, you know, you mentioned um, the Everglades and, and certain, you know, environmental issues that probably get the bulk of the attention and the bulk yeah. of the money, quite frankly. Sure. Um, but, I mean, when you're talking about billions of dollars over DeSantis's first term, yeah. uh, you know, that that's a significant achievement and one that should be celebrated. The idea Certainly. of the CFWI was... Okay, we always talk about water issues as needing a regional solution. Let's come up with a regional framework uh, to present projects that will create regional solutions. I think we've failed in having the legislature say we should be putting $200 million a year into the Central Florida Water Initiative mm-hmm. and those projects they've identified as being a regional benefit. I'm not gonna. I'm a, I almost baited you into the ad valorem at water management districts discussion. I'm gonna leave that alone for for both of our sake at the moment. It, it's always tough to talk about taxes, sure? right? I mean, <laughs> no, I, I say that like I'm not gonna do it as yeah. I begin to do it. We talk about regional solutions. I'm a water management guy. We have these regional organizations called water management districts put a lot at their feet in terms of the you know, consumptive use permitting and, and ERP. We talked about the, you know, on the 404 side, when you look at things like CFWI and Brian Armstrong's done tremendous work. I mean, the, the Southwest Florida water management district itself used to have something I could call it the financial engine that they would use and set aside millions of dollars every year to, to help fund these regional water resource projects and it feels like sometimes we are handcuffing ourselves a little bit in terms of their ability for regional places and people there to, to make decisions to have how we pay for growth match up with, with the growth itself. I agree. You know, Brian has done a tremendous job and Robert Beltran before him, yeah. you know, really took on that, that regional approach. And I mean, I, I think it was shared um, with Ann Shortell at St. John's. Yep. Um, and, and I think you had a group of water management district executive directors, and you're certainly among those, although your challenges in, in North Florida are maybe a little <laughs> bit different. Not, not nearly as severe in, um, in that water supply. Yeah, But no, I, I do think that we, unfortunately, don't focus enough of our resources um, on, on, on large-scale regional solutions yeah i know i'm taking a bunch of your time we're going to go into lightning round of of sorts because i tell you know i ask largely a lot of the same questions but first before i do that i do want to ask you what your approach is now so now you're outside of government you're not in an association what's your approach to the lobbying consulting world is it a lot like how you described you know being inside government it can be. Uh, I mean, lobbying is unique. Uh, it, it's it's an interesting profession, to say the least, um, because a, as an attorney and a lobbyist, I am a you know a zealous advocate for my client, and my sure. client varies by the day. And the, the 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 situation or the subject matter area varies by the hour from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I get paid to have opinions, which is a little bit different than, you know, right. uh, being in uh, a state employee where the mission is clear. It's protection right. of the natural resource. It's engagement and interaction 
uh, with permit applicants um, and trying to better Florida, I feel like I'm doing the same thing and I'm blessed to have a, you know, a client base that is large scale still represent a lot of local governments. Um, I represent a number of electric water and wastewater utilities, uh, the business community as well. So I, I feel like I've got a, a nice mix of clientele, but the approach from a lobbying perspective is, you know, with term limits, I have to educate new members, quite frankly, on, on issues that are recycled. I, I mean, sure. you know, no bad idea gets left on the, <laughs> on the printing press in, in Tallahassee. They all come back in one shape or form. Sure. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, at least being able to have a reputation that I've, I've, done it before, yeah. you know, in, in a, in a position of some authority at a large department within the state of Florida. Um, I've got the chops, if you will. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's about relationships at the end of the day. So yeah. it, it's a lot of, um, meeting new folks, trying to understand why, why they're in, um, the position they're in, in elected office. And then can you find some sort of common ground? There's 120 house members. There's 40 senators. Yeah. Um, you know, not every one of them is a 41 year old from upstate New York who <laughs> likes live music, obsessed with college football. I mean that, you know, some of them are, but not all. Um, so yeah. you really kind of have to be, um, well-versed in many different things. I like it. So you, I can't let you go. You, you said you said live music. Uh, what type of music? My music takes are eclectic. Um, you know, I've, I've been I've been growing the hair out recently. So there we've there's noticed. Some, we've all noticed. There's right? some jam band in there. Okay. Um, certainly, I, I you know my college. Uh, my college road trips were largely focused around a couple different bands in particular, but um, I, I love all kinds of music. My wife and I have a, a really solid group of friends. Our sort of our thing is traveling to see live music. So nice. that could be Jason Isbell one day to whatever the latest iteration of the Dead is. To right. you know, if I could catch a Sturgill Simpson show, that's probably number one on my list right now. If those vocal cords could get repaired. Wow. Um, but Tallahassee, at least now these days. You know, you could say, hey, you know, Lucas Nelson's Lucas, Lucas Nelson's coming next week. Great. You know, Willie Nelson was here two weeks ago yeah. with Emmylou Harris. You can get some something. Whereas growing up, you know, it was, hey, maybe MC Hammer drops into town <laughs> every five years. I, I always consider like, I guess when you're when you're growing up and you have access to a vehicle and fuel for that vehicle. I mean, you have Atlanta, Jacksonville and Tampa all within, you know, striking distance. And so. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of good music that passes through. That's for sure. All right, on to the speed round. Uh, what professional accomplishment are you most proud of? I think becoming secretary of DEP at 34, um, yeah, you know, running bad. an agency of 2,500 people and billion dollar budget and the 13th largest economy in the world. I think that's it. You could do worse. It's got to be you it. You could do worse. Yeah. Is there anything about government that government service? And I think you may have mentioned it before that you feel is kind of left undone or underdone? I would have liked to have made more of an impact from a water quantity standpoint Mm. of where I think we inevitably get to in this state. And maybe we can talk about that at a later date, but that's potable reuse. I I wish that we would have made more strides in the potable reuse world when I was at DEP. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment and water in Florida? And And if you are or not, why? I'm largely optimistic, uh, and I think Governor DeSantis has shown the willingness to 
um, invest and prioritize, as has the legislature, obviously, who has to craft the budget. Yeah. Um, I, I still think that we're going to face some pretty heady problems um, as it relates to, again, how long can you pull significant quantities of water from the aquifer without either charging people more or which I know is a bad word. Yeah. Um, or, or trying to finalize or, or figure out how, how you do that in perpetuity. What if anything keeps you up at night regarding Florida's environment? Losing Florida. I mean, you know, I, I think those of us, and even though I was born in New York, I've, I've spent a majority of my life here and particularly North Florida, which I, I love. Um, I mean, there's something about, old Florida, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to lose that. We are again, getting about a thousand people a day moving here, which is not sustainable in in current keeping old Florida. Um, so that's what keeps me up at night. What does Florida look like in 30, 40 years when my kids are, you know, hopefully in the same position and having children of their own? Yeah. What advice would you give to a young person who's thinking about entering or just entering public service or, you know, the, the things related to environmental policy and service? Public service, I wish, you know, there was a, a mandatory aspect to it. I think anybody, yeah. everyone should get involved um, somehow, quite frankly. Uh, my advice would be to, you know, educate yourself. Um, again, one of my biggest fears when I was young was just, just looking like an idiot um, mm. and, and doing your homework and, and uh, you know, identifying issues that you're passionate about. Um, and then having, you know, willing to be a human being and have conversations with people in a reasonable manner, it goes a long way and it can be lost in uh, days like today. Yeah, it feels like that's a conversation's a lost art. You haven't lost your knack for it. Brian Matthews, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Appreciate you having me. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Soren for making the best of what he had to work with. And to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for our last conversation of the season with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. You won't want to miss it. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.